There are two times I've been in a courtroom. One time it was because I was receiving instructions about jury duty. Didn't end up serving on a jury, but just got some instructions about it. The other was because I got caught speeding down Route 6 with Rhoda. Uh, <laughs> if you don't know Rhoda, Rhoda's in her 80s. We, 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 we were on our way to uh, a denominational meeting, and as I was heading down the hill towards Johnson to jump on 295, Gave a little pep to the gas to get through that orange light. And, you know, it was out of concern for Rhoda because I didn't want her to slam into my, my uh, dashboard as I slammed on my brakes. Um, and, of course, there was a police officer at the bottom of the hill, and he directed me to pull over so I could get my ticket. Now, I hadn't gotten a ticket in a while, so he said I could go to court and get it dismissed from my record. I trekked over to Johnston Municipal Court, made my appearance, and the judge kindly expunged it from my record. It was a bit of a tedious process. I had to stand in line, wait my turn. I still had to pay a little bit of money. And, uh, and it's easy to start thinking it might be nice if we didn't have to deal with judges, if we didn't have to deal with the law. But if we think a little longer and harder, we can see that that wouldn't be so great. Without judges to decide cases and to assign penalties, our society would descend into absolute chaos. Perhaps the government would turn into a military state to establish some kind of order, but that would only introduce new problems as abuses emerged that would have no appeal to a judge. A new rule would be might makes right. But we do have judges, and we live our life respecting that reality. Now, of course, not everyone does respect that reality, and some manage to escape judgment. In fact, we have to think that most criminals move forward with their plans because they believe that they can escape. But imagine if it was literally impossible for them to escape. Imagine if the police had a 100% rate of apprehending criminals and setting them before a judge. And the criminals knew this. Well, if they knew that, and if that was really true, I imagine the crime rates would drop. Sadly, this is not so. Not by our powers, anyways. Our judges don't get the chance to judge every criminal. But this does not mean that they will not face judgment. When Christ returns, the dead will be raised, and all will stand before his judgment. No one will escape their call to court. And yet most don't recognize this reality. It doesn't inform their decision-making. They worry more about the imperfect judges of this earth than the perfect divine judge. Well, many Americans say they believe in God, and you can point to all kinds of 
statistics that indicate that lots of people in our country believe in God, it is clear that they do not fear his judgment. The sickness of our society makes that all too clear. But there is more to be concerned about than the present troubles. Jesus makes this clear in today's passage from Matthew 18. I invite you to turn there with me. We'll be starting in verse 6 of chapter 18 in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Jesus has been telling his disciples what it means to be truly great in the kingdom of heaven, and that it means to be humble like a little child. And Matthew, one of his disciples, continues to record what Jesus has to say to his disciples. Picking up in verse 6, Jesus says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. So Jesus begins this portion of his teaching by referring to these little ones. And these little ones are not referring to literal kids. Now, as people read these verses, very often they think that this is referring to literal children, but we'll know from reading the previous verses that Jesus is referring to his own disciples as little ones, as children. And that, that is the position that they are to assume, that position of, of humility. Little ones represents the humble disciples. He brings them up to make this promise that anyone who would make one of these little ones, one of his, his disciples stumble, is going to face severe consequences. Now what he means by saying that when he talks about these little ones stumbling, is he's talking about anything that would cause his disciples to, to begin living a life of sin, to falter in the faith, to stop following Jesus in the way that they ought. And the reason why Jesus is promising that there's going to be consequences for those who lead his disciples astray is because when they stumble, there's the potential for eternal consequences. Something's really at stake here. Now, those who would make disciples stumble could be those who claim to be disciples and make their way um, into the group of Jesus' disciples and in the present day could make their way into the church. But we can see how out in the world there are those that would tempt the followers of Jesus to stumble, that would tempt Christians to 
compromise on their beliefs, that as you have friends, they might put pressure on you to do what they do, to do things that don't accord with the way of Jesus, to prioritize things that don't line up with the priorities of the kingdom, even just to make things more important than the kingdom of God and the life of the church. We see this more readily represented in those who deal drugs, and those who distribute pornography, and those figures who lead cults and lead people very much astray and destroy lives. And what all these things just tell us, that remind us, is that sin loves company. And what Jesus is telling his disciples here is that those who would lead others into their own ways of sinfulness are going to face consequences. And Jesus makes clear the seriousness of this by saying, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, if you want to imagine what a millstone looks like that Jesus is referring to, this is kind of an old-fashioned millstone where it just go round and round. Maybe you could hook up a, if you got a longer pole, you could hook up a mule or something to it. Big stone. Jesus is saying that it would be better for you to have one of those tied around your neck and for you to be tossed into the sea than to face the judgment that's coming for those who lead the disciples of Christ astray. Now that, that's kind of terrifying. I'd be I'd be pretty scared if someone tied one of those and said, okay, you're going to go for a swim with the fishes. Um, What's a better option than what awaits those who lead the disciples astray? Because it's quick. It's a quick end. You're not going to last long in the ocean with that around your neck. It's quick compared to the suffering which awaits those who fall into the hands of God's judgment. Now, Jesus is a realist. He recognizes that in this world, there are things that are going to cause us to stumble. We don't even need help stumbling. We do that just fine on our own. But those who go to the effort of trying to help people stumble, they have a lot coming at them. He says, to directly underscore kind of the seriousness, he says, woe to the person through whom they come. Divine judgment is awaiting those who lead Jesus' disciples astray. Because they are leading them to sin, and they are leading them to their death. This, and this does happen. This happens in our, in our world. But it's not the only way that the disciple can go astray. Because just as I, I've just said, we do pretty well on our own figuring out ways to stumble. And Jesus recognizes this. Continuing verse 8, he says, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into internal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. 
It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So Jesus' words here are similar to what he said earlier in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 29 through 30. He says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Pretty much the exact same thing that he says here. And just as he was saying there, and as he's saying here, what he's doing is speaking metaphorically, but seriously. He's not literally telling his disciples, okay, like if your hand's causing you to sin, you know, grab a knife and literally cut it off. Um, but you need to take the sin that is occurring in your life with that kind of seriousness. You've got to cut those things out of your life that are leading you to sin, those relationships, those situations. You've got to cut the sin itself out because whatever worldly loss you might experience in doing that, because removing yourself from particular situations or particular relationships does come at a cost, whatever loss you experience will be better than the eternal loss that you'll experience if you continue in sin. Now, we all understand this kind of reasoning in an earthly sense, though um, we might not have the willpower to, to see it through. Um, if you, were, you might recall a while back now, I guess it's 19 years ago, in 2003, there was a fellow named Aaron Ralston, and he was descending this canyon, and as he was descending the canyon, a boulder fell and got his arm caught between the canyon and this rock. And uh, literally caught between a rock and a hard place. And fortunately, they didn't have Apple Watches or anything like, like that back then, so he couldn't call anybody. So he had to make a decision. He could stay there and just starve to death, or he could break his arm, take out his dull knife, cut his arm off, and uh, hike the rest of the way down the canyon. And he chose to do that. Now, I don't know if I would have the willpower to do that. I don't know if you would, but um, reasonably speaking, it makes sense. It's better for him to just lose his arm than to lose his life. He took the stake seriously. And when you think about a situation like that, how seriously he took that situation, that he was willing to cut off his arm to save his life, it makes you wonder, do we take sin that seriously? Have we really truly grasped the ramifications of what will happen if we allow our lives to be, continue to be stuck in sin? Jesus Again, similarly says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot, cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Eternity is at stake. And, you know, in our society, we've, we've tend to 
forgotten about eternal life. We just think about this life, and we try to avoid thinking about death. But if you truly believe that there is a God, and that he's merciful and gracious, and that he has offered you a way to have eternal life, to be raised from the dead, to live in a new creation, and you have a choice between either being sent to destruction or having a new life so that your end of the life doesn't end with you getting old and your body breaking down and then you're just laid in the ground, that's it. If you believe that's actual, an actual option, wouldn't you do anything to get that? Wouldn't it be worth cutting anything in your life out to get that? Jesus says it is. He says it's better to enter life maimed, basically, with one eye or one arm than it is to be thrown into the eternal fire, the fire of hell. And by kind of using that language of thrown, we get this idea that it doesn't matter if you don't want to go there, you're going there. You're going to be punished for the wrong things that you have done. Because God is a just God. Now, the language that he uses here, and you don't catch it in the English, he talks about the fire of hell. The word hell here comes from the word Gehenna, which refers to the valley of Hinnom, which is located in the midst of Jerusalem, right next to Jerusalem. And it was a place where they would throw out all their garbage. They would throw the bodies of dead animals that they used for the sacrifices, and they would burn them there. And so it was just constantly burning. It was to the southeast of Jerusalem, so the wind was kind of blowing away, so it was a good place to basically have a dump, so you wouldn't be smelling it all the time. It was a place of destruction, where it would just burn and burn and burn until... What was there was turned to ashes. Now, in talking about the fire of hell, the fire of Gehenna, Jesus isn't saying that we're literally going any, to, anyone who remains in sin is going to be thrown into that valley. That's not what he's saying. He's using it to put an image in the minds of his disciples and of those that he's teaching. That the judgment of God is final. There's no coming back from Gehenna. Now, we do wonder when would that occur? When would someone be cast into that fire? You know, popularly, we've kind of gotten this conception that when a person dies, it's you go to heaven and you're there forever and that's the end, it's great. And other people go to hell, and they're tortured there, and they're just there forever. Um, but that doesn't match up with the biblical timeline. That's not the timeline that you hear from the apostles. Everything turns on the return of Christ. The fulfillment of our salvation turns on the return of Christ, and the judgment of, of the wicked awaits the return of Christ. In Revelation 20, 11 through 15. This is the vision that the Apostle John saw. He said, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. A lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So we all recognize that as we live on this earth, all of us will face death. I'm going to die, you're going to die, we're all going to die, unless Christ returns first. When Christ returns, all those who were dead will be raised, and we will stand before Christ to be judged. And those who have trusted in him will enter into life, but those who have not, whose names are not found in the book of life, will be cast into the lake of fire, which is a place of destruction, which is just, this is just another image of what that valley of Hinnom would probably look like. This is actually from Peru. But it's a place of destruction. To the extent that John records that it's referred to as the place of second death. A place from which there is no return. That's it. Now, the scriptures are pretty clear that this is the basic option that we have. If you think about the verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So you've got two options. You can have eternal life, or you will perish. And which way it goes all turns on whether you believe in Christ or not, whether you've put your faith in Christ. But perhaps you're thinking here, Jesus has just been talking about how it's necessary for us to cut sin out of our lives to avoid the fire of hell. So is there some kind of inconsistency here? Is it, is it believing, or is it cutting out sin? Well, in truth, it, it's a false dichotomy. The one flows into the other. We get some help from, from John again. In 1 John 3, verses 6 through 10. He says, No one who lives in him, that's Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. 
So we recognize that Christians do sin. Chris talked about it perfectly in, it, in, in his lead-up to communion. We do wrestle with sin, even those of us who are followers of Christ. But the nature of our relationship with sin is one which is a battle. We're actively fighting against it, cutting it off. No one who belongs to Christ allows sin to just grow freely. They don't let the weeds grow tall. Because they can't do that, because they've been born again in Christ. They've received a new life. The seed of Christ is within them, and they can't, it just can't let it, it can't tolerate those things growing up within them. And so, if there are persons that aren't cutting those sins off from their lives, if they just keep on doing what they're doing, what they're really demonstrating is, is that they haven't really, truly been born again in Jesus. Maybe they think they have, maybe they've prayed a prayer or something, but the evidence isn't being borne out by their lives. By saying that it would be better to drown in the sea than to cause believers to stumble. By saying it is better to lose a part of our body than to continue to sin. By saying these things, Jesus is once again trying to help us see the world from the vantage point of God's kingdom. Jesus' central message has been that the kingdom of God has come upon us. And what he's made clear here is that no one escapes justice in God's kingdom. So how should we respond? We should respond with holy fear and obedience. Maybe you indulge in gossip and encourage others to gossip. Maybe you're addicted to pornography. Maybe you're verbally violent or even physically violent to others. Maybe you're simply doing something you know is wrong. Our sins have a way of becoming like crutches to us. We go to them eye, hand, and foot. We feel miserable, and so we talk about others. Seek comfort in cold images. Lash out. Do, what, do whatever we feel will keep us standing. And we tell ourselves it's harmless. It's no big deal. It's nothing compared to what that person did in the news. The trouble is, we're not the judge. We can soothe ourselves all we want. But that comfort will evaporate like a mirage when we stand before God. Will your name be found in the book of life? Maybe. But if you're lapping up sin like a cat with its bowl of milk, I'm going to say that it's unlikely. Anyone who belongs to Jesus doesn't stick with their sins. 
joined in Christ's death on the cross, their sins are cut off. They let them fall to the ground. And they walk away. Your rescue from sin and entrance into the life of the kingdom begins like this. You turn your back on sin. You surrender yourselves to Jesus. And you trust that he's enough to save you. Enough to cover all of your sins and imperfections. Because they're there. They're real. And once that happens, once you turn from sin, once you trust in Christ, that's when the real work begins. The work of Christ on the cross begins bearing itself out in your own life. Change appears in your life as God's grace is poured out through the Holy Spirit who now inhabits you, through the teaching of the Bible, and through the encouragement and accountability of Christ's body, your fellow believers. You can't do it on your own. You need God, his word, and his people. That combination is exactly what we're striving to bring together here in our discipleship process at the church. You won't be perfect, but that's expected. There will be plenty of one-eyed, one-handed, one-footed people hobbling with Jesus into the kingdom. What you won't see is any able-bodied sinners walking in. Their failure to repent is tragic, but God's judgment of them is good. It is good news that those who cling to evil that those who lead others to sin and rebel against God is good news that they will be brought to justice. Because without God, there is no justice. There is no accountability. The wicked don't answer for what they have done. With God, there is both justice and mercy. Forgiveness and restoration to all who turn to Jesus and are justified by him. Judgment and destruction for all who reject him. Let us pray. Father, we have been confronted by your word this morning. We have been confronted by the reality that you are a just God. That the wrong and evil things that are done on this earth will face judgment. That those who lead your disciples astray will face judgment. And that all of us who refuse to cut sin out of our lives, who instead cling to it and embrace it all the more, that we, too, would face judgment. Father, this is a sobering reality. Father, I pray that it would sober us. Because, Father, we don't take you seriously enough. 
We don't take our actions seriously enough. We don't take the reality of the eternal consequences seriously enough. Father, make these things weigh upon our minds for our own sakes and for the sake of others. Because now, Father, we live in the age of grace, a time in which you've given us to respond with faith to your Son, Jesus Christ, to trust in him, to be covered by him, and for sin to be hacked away through his indwelling power in our lives. Father, we give you thanks that our salvation is not dependent on our perfection, but on the perfection of Christ. And that you've given us the privilege of just receiving this new life by faith. May we receive it, Father. And if any here, Father, have not done that, I pray that you, can, you would convict their hearts to do so. That they would simply say, I'm done with sin. I'm done with being ruled by it. Instead, I'm going to trust in Christ and let him sprout up new life within me. Father, this is the good gift that you've given to the world because you love us. We give you praise for your love, Father, and pray that we may share in that love as we go to the world with this warning, but with also the good news that salvation is offered in Christ. We ask this in his holy name, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord bless you all. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.